Round four of the 2023 Six Nations is all wrapped up and it's a pretty bleak weekend to have been an England fan. France condemned them to a record defeat at Twickenham. And joining me today to discuss whether this is indeed rock bottom are Nick Kane and Brendan Gallagher, as well as former England and Scotland head coach Andy Robinson. Not a great weekend to be an Englishman. Uh, very good weekend to be a France fan. A record home defeat at Twickenham at the hands of the French, who were clinical, to say the least. Um, Scotland versus Ireland went a little bit more to script, and Wales battled their way to a, a first win of the Warren Gatland 2.0 era in Rome. Um, today, bulk of discussion will be around England, as I've said to um, you boys. I've got the perfect group of men to do so, minus Chris Hewitt, who sadly can't be with us today. Um, Nick and Brendan are both here, and we're with former England and Scotland head coach Andy Robinson. How, how are you doing, Andy? Yeah, really good, thank you. Good, good, great to have you with us. So you you just told me you weren't at Twickenham at the weekend. No, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. But uh, watching from home, I did watch the game and uh, hugely impressed by the way the French played tactically and the execution of their plan. First time they've won there since two thousand and five, and I was the head coach of England that day um, when we started very well, um, but lost uh, to six kicks. That day, um, eighteen sixteen. Yeah, and well, the, Fr- the French were even more impressive at the weekend. Let's let's start. we'll obviously have a lot to say from the England side of things. Um, but first of all, Nick, how good were France? France were very very good. I mean, France were outstanding. They weren't, um, you know, they were better than clinical. Uh, they were very physical. They were too physical, too too physically powerful. Uh, for England, the idea that England were going to leave them winded and, uh, and and sort of take them to the wire um, through a, a faster-paced game uh, didn't ever look like materialising. And actually, at the end, the uh, the side that looked, I thought, significantly fitter, particularly in the forwards, was the French. Um, and England really didn't fire a shot. And I think that that's the thing that... Um, concerns me most. I mean, I, I didn't disagree with um, Ellis's, Ellis Genge's summary afterwards that, you know, if you leave it out there, um, you know, in terms of effort and there's a gap in class and ability, then you've got to take that on, on the chin. Um, although he did say that for 80% of the time, he thought that England competed and, um I certainly didn't think that they were that there was not the level of intensity that you would have expected from an international side, and I think it was Benjamin Kayser said um, on on commentary that this was an absolutely crucial game, a pivotal game for France. Well, it was also a pivotal game for England, considering everything that's gone on, and uh, one team passed the test with flying colours, and the other one certainly didn't. And from a France point of view, you said it was a pivotal game. I pre- presume you mean in the sense that just a little bit of dialogue had started to creep in in terms of the French having peaked too early. And I'm guessing it's under, well, by them passing, it means they restate their claim as one of the primary World Cup contenders for later this year. Yes. Yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, they. Um, I, I don't think that they'd really fired uh, fully uh, during this uh, Six Nations uh, up until now. They were off it slightly against everybody, I think. Uh, but um, they clearly came looking for an exceptional performance and they got it. They made very, very few mistakes and they certainly didn't give England, you know, they gave 
England barely a sniff of an opportunity to get back into the game. But, no, you know, that said, with the exception, again, of Freddie Stewart, there was no English player who looked as if they were going to, if you like, lead the resistance against the French. There was nobody. Yeah, That started with the um, right from the first kickoff, didn't it, Nick? Yeah, yeah but with the French move, yeah, catching the ball and, and not box kicking to Freddie Stewart to catch it. They moved it into centre field. And did it, and Dupont kicked from the centre field straight away. That you know, sort of Stewart didn't have one box kick to catch, and that's where we, he's been renowned for those catching skills. So to you know have that in their armory to to mix up the kicking game shows they put a lot of thought into their uh, into their tactics. Yeah, t- totally the opposite to, um, to to what England experienced against Wales when Wales kicked absolutely to England's strengths. Yeah. I agree with you. They moved. They moved him around. And, um, you know, people have talked about, you know, him maybe lacking a bit of gas. But when you looked at the amount of ground he had to cover during the course of that game, I mean, he would have been he would have been well out of gas at the end of it because he covered a huge amount of ground. And yet he still had the strength to, uh, you know, to 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 make a single statement for England with his try. Um, I thought he was very good again. Um, but he was a notable exception. Yeah, and we'll get to who any positives for England in a second. Um, obviously, the stars aligned in quite a lot of ways for France. Dupont, Aldrit, and Tamar Colivon all probably had their best games of the championship. But Brendan, do you think it's a coincidence that the French team looked as co- complete as they had in the tournament so far now that Jonathan Dante was back? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, he makes a huge difference. Um, and Gail Ficalou great player already but he seems to just sort of slot in uh, alongside Dante and produce his full array of skills including his kicking game but I mean that that was the performance that everybody feared from France we've been a bit hypercritical of France in the last year only because they're so good that you can just see a great team there they were a little bit quiet in the autumn for me even though they had a couple of good wins Uh, and yes this is the first time they've hit their straps in the Six Nations. First time Aldrich hit the straps. Uh, Olivon with him. Uh, Marchand, again, had a much, much better game than he's been having. And then Dupont decided to have one of his stellar games where uh, nothing can stop him. I don't think any I don't think any team would have actually have stopped uh, France on Saturday. Nobody. Nobody would have got within 15 points of them. But that's how good they, that's how good they can be. I, I'm not sure about that. I, I think that the... Um... The game that they had against South Africa in the autumn was a classic. And you saw there a side that can, you know, go toe for toe to toe with them physically. And that is the key component, I think. So I, I, I'm not sure about 10 or 15 points, but I'd... I thought there were a couple of leagues above on Saturday. I think they reduced in the autumn, to be honest, way above. They, but they were but, moments in the autumn. But then but... you've got to look at who they were playing, you know, and. Well, um, you know, you've been a team that won two the last two test matches in the Six Nations. We are now looking back on England and saying they were rubbish, but we're saying that you know a team no, that was two out of three. I don't agree. We're not saying that they that they were rubbish. What we were saying was, I think, what we've said that both of those wins were scrappy wins, and yeah. uh, you know, not entirely convincing. Um, and we then saw the 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 gulf in class that there is um, between those teams at the top and i put south africa very definitely in that bracket what uh, i like about what i like about the french team is the balance they've got i think when you look at 
Flamon playing in the second row with Valencia. They've got some speed in that in that second row, and they've also got some power. You look at their back row. They're interchangeable in terms of that, but also they've got a line-out presence in that back row. They can all carry. They're all very good defenders. They're all very good over the ball. And Cross is a bit like a Richard Hill. Mm. Um, does so much work that's unseen and you know, and doesn't get the praise for it, but he's a he's a quality player. And then you look at the back line, and yeah, I think this year the Six Nations has been really good to see centre combinations come through. And you look at the Scottish centre combination, and then you're seeing Dante and Fiku play together. And I think that was an exceptional performance from them because they complement each other. Mm. Andy, I was going to ask you, um, did you think, from an England perspective now, obviously we've sung the French praises and I'm sure we'll debate whether England were rubbish or whether they were simply outclassed and outpowered by a very good French side. Before Saturday, did you see a feasible route for England to win the World Cup? And has that changed or do you still not? I believe England can still win the World Cup, yes. I, I still think they've got the um, the firepower there and they've got the ability to win a one-off game. And that's what the World Cup will be about, is the ability to win um, quarter-final, semi-final, final. Um, because England will get into the quarter-final and have the mentality to be able to do that. Uh, what England disappointed me with at the weekend was their lack of um, execution of their mall and the power that they've got from their mall. It's a it's a really strong area for Steve Borswick in his coaching, and he's been developing that for this England team. But they had opportunities close to the line. They weren't able to take those. And I think that was one of the areas where I thought England had been improving on that they weren't able to uh, to showcase. Obviously, there's this debate about 10, and that has to be solved. And you know, so I think uh, 9 and 10 is an area where... Um, we're not sure, uh, nobody is sure on who's going to be selected and uh, we don't know. And I think you've got to be able to settle on a 9 and 10 that they're going to be able to perform. I really felt for Van Poorfleet to the weekend because you imagine playing 9 under the pressure that the England Rup was under and the, you know, it was a tough day for him and it, not just because he was a bit off it, but also England weren't getting quality ball uh, at any stage, at any rut. But I think there's some, there's some challenges for England to, to actually find a settled team ready to go through to the World Cup. So this is the interesting debate that's been circulating is with Jack Van Poorfleet, who certainly was off his game or certainly didn't have his best day, and Marcus Smith, um, the Marcus Smith experiment particularly. Was it a failure or was it because the England pack got out power overpowered so significantly up front and it'll come to you again yeah i think i think every ruck was challenged by the uh by the french team um one because of the good low tackle but also because of the expertise of the second man coming in and being strong over the ball if not winning it putting uh the uh, ball presentation under huge pressure and then the ability of the two guards of the french guards to any little spillage um, ball, ball presentation, they were on it in a, um, so quickly. So that's what put Van Poorfleet under pressure. England never, when England established the go forward, they looked good. And they had time on the ball. And that try that they scored with Stewart was a quality try. And that was uh, some really good ball carries, hitting edges of uh, of shoulders, 
and England, you know, sort of, it looked comfortable for England when they scored that try. But at, at no stage in the game did they ever find that rhythm uh, at, at any other time. Eight penalties conceded in the first half, most of them at the breakdown. And England's breakdown technique was shown to be, I think, woeful. I mean, they're off their feet. They're over the top of the ball um, with hands over the top. And, you know, these are things that I think that you expect international players to have absorbed by now. Um, And so that's why when I say England were dreadful, I think that they were. But the the French ball carriers were phenomenal in the way that they carried. You know, Audrey, his ability to stay up and win the collision in the manner that he did. And I think that was one of the elements for England in terms of the ball carrying. The carriers weren't able to uh, get between defenders and attack the space. They were running at defenders and being chopped to the ground very quickly. So England weren't able to establish that uh, that go forward. And then the support was slow. Yeah. And I think that those are the elements to it. You know, you've got to get quicker support and, you know, the ball carrier's got to stay on his feet longer. And it was a big shock to the system, wasn't it? Because against Wales, it was the back row pretty much that won the game uh, for England. I thought they were outstanding. Even if I had... I have seen a couple of collages on Twitter about that game from Welsh supporters suggesting England were up to all sorts of illegalities <laughs> and, and getting refereed very leniently. Now, there might have been a little bit in that because, you know, they, they, they did get, as Nick said, they got pinged a lot on Saturday at the breakdown. But they just disappeared com- compared with that French back row, which, as you say, and is so well balanced. It comes at you from all, all angles. Mm-hmm. And England didn't seem to have a plan B when that when that guaranteed pill from the, from the back row, quality possession, seemed to dry up. There wasn't a, a plan B. Because if, if you look at the, the set pieces... I saw some stats which are pretty much the same as France from yeah. line out. There was no almost no difference between the two teams, remarkably, given the scoreline. It yeah, was all but, in the back but row. The quality, but the quality of the ball from the set pieces. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. is one of the things that gets overlooked. We got data overload at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stats about, you know, England won all their line out board. Yeah, they did, but half of it was rubbish. You know, yeah. a lot of it was very, very scrappy, very loose, and they were knocked back. Um, incidentally, you know, I take the point about the, the you know, the, the visibility of the two back rows was was massively different. But, you know, I mean, three of the penalties certainly that England conceded were conceded by Carl Sinclair, either for not releasing or for, you know, going over the top uh, at the breakdown. So it's not just the back row forwards. I think most of them are, are actually pretty adept at the breakdown. I think it's perhaps the front five that uh, you know need a, need a fair amount of work in that regard. But but we you know so I'm I'm talking about the French background, their carrying ability. You've also got to add Dupont in there, and Dupont you know sort of his his ability to attack the guard and uh, second defender um, allows time you know because you've got to sit and defend him allows time for the back row to come onto the ball, yeah. and for. Uh, Van Porfley, there was n- he didn't really run and didn't really attack. And yeah, sort of to get your forwards into the game, you need a nine that is sharp enough to attack around guard and uh, bodyguard, whatever you want to call him, mm. but also to have the you know, sort of to run. Mm. And yeah, I, 
I think that's what we've got to get the balance into the game, as well as playing to, to Marcus Smith and to the outside backs. We need our nines to be able to run and be a running threat. And that will give the English players the time to come onto the ball and pick the lines that they need to pick. And I think um, within all this, yeah, our, you know, so probably in the forwards, you're, you're looking at your best ball carriers being Ludlam. Uh, and yeah, so he didn't really get into the game enough, but he's a he's a strong ball carrier. And then you're looking at Genj and, and Sinclair. Yeah, you know, th- those are the three real big ball carriers that we've got. And you know, so we've got to find a way of getting you know, some more ball carriers in, into that pack and into the game. Yeah, how how difficult though, Andy, for a for a scrum half to make the sort of breaks that you're talking about. You know, given the breakdown situation that he was and and situation overall that he was confronted with, which was one of no momentum. Oh, very tough, <laughs> very very tough. And that's where you've got to be able to pick your, be able to yeah, you know, sort of pick your moments of when you do get a, a really good uh, ball carry to then try and expose uh, that area. But you're, you're exactly right. You know, sort of. I think any any scrum half would have hated playing in that yeah, playing in that game. Um, you know, whether it be Matt Dawson, Kieran Bracken, um, you know, some of our greatest scum halves, yeah, they would have uh, found it tough. However, what I would have said is that uh, Kieran Bracken and Matt Dawson would have had a real go at the English forward forwards or the ball presentation and told them to sort it out or to get it off the field. Yeah, so yeah, that that's something that I think is missed sometimes is the um the ability of our nine and ten to dominate the, the the forwards to make sure that they do deliver quality ball. Do you think Jack Van Portfleet is capable of that? He's not necessarily the... Well, he's obviously very young and he's very green in an England team where there are some more experienced heads, not least in the forwards. Do you think Jack Van Portfleet needs to be given that green light to say to your senior players, your Genges, your Atojes, your Curries when he's fit to sort of get their act together? Of course he does. Then that, that's the nine. Yeah, he's uh, he's in that position. Um, yeah, he he needs quality ball, and he has to be given the ball on the plate. Dawes did that from about the age of nineteen, didn't he? Bossing people yeah. around, and and Kieran in his own way knew exactly what he wanted. Exactly, and and that's the a key quality for your nine. Um, the the great uh, Aussie coaches that are that I've uh, met and chatted to. And Scott Johnson and uh, Eddie Jones will always say that your nine is a half back and a half forward, and uh, yeah, they've got to be able to play that way. Well, Dupont I- certainly manages it. Yeah. <laughs> Brendan, I'm interested that you brought up the breakdown um, because it brings me to two names in particular that I don't think have been the same at the breakdown since the 2019 World Cup, and that's Maro Itoje and Tom Curry. Obviously, I know Tom Curry isn't fit at the moment. But I would say those were two of three or four genuine world-class players England had at the 2019 World Cup, and they haven't been since. Not really a question, but it seems to me that England aren't getting the best out of anyone at the moment and haven't been, actually, for three and a half years. Well, Itoji's a mystery, isn't he? I mean, the electricity's gone out of his game. He used to do extraordinary things, make incredible turnovers by hook or by crook. Um, and he used to run much more, much more dynamically. And I don't, we're not seeing that. Now, he has hinted at this illness condition ever, which he hasn't revealed what it is. But he seemed to be indicating he was over it last week. Well, 
it certainly didn't show in his performance. He was still lethargic, um, still doing, you know, the basics that line out fairly well. Um, but you're going to have to ask the question fairly soon whether perhaps he needs a bit of a rest or, or, or a drop in just to give him that kick up the back tie that every player in history has probably needed at some time. Tom Curry, well, he's not here to defend him. He hasn't had an opportunity to present his case really in this tournament. But we were a bit worried about him anyway, weren't we, during the autumn? Uh, possibly overbulked, done, you know, done the um, too much time in the gym, lost a little bit of that flexibility, versatility around the breakdown. Uh, but, you know, he's young. I would like to think he's going to come again. He had quite a lot of miles on the clock in a short space of time from the moment he broke in. Lions tour. Very, very physical player. You know, taken out a bit of a battering. It might be he was having a quiet period. But England, if they'd have any chance in the World Cup, and they have got a good draw. You know, as Andy says, you know, it's not impossible. They had a couple of big matches at the tail end of that tournament. But they will need Tom Curry back to his best and they will need Mario Toji back to his best no question yeah I mean I I have to say that I think that you know England have got to move away very very quickly from the mentality um you know where Steve Borthwick is talking about an inheritance where England were good at nothing and so on and so forth you know we 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 really need him now to tell us what he's going to do about it and how he's going to get England to that state, uh, you know, your earlier question, can they, can they win the World Cup? Well, uh, you know, where we are now, there's not a chance, even with a favourable draw. Um, so what we need to know is, you know, in terms of, of, of fitness, power and speed, you know, because their conditioning doesn't seem to be where it ought to be. Their, their, their mentality didn't seem to be where it ought to have been in terms of the intensity that they needed to bring to that game against France. There are so many areas where they seem to be uh, off it. The set piece was exposed very badly. Uh, I've seen, you know, I've seen player ratings and so on and so forth about Genge and Sinclair. People are very sold on the idea of having footballing props. And look, I am too. But their primary job is still to scrummage. And the the try that France scored uh, on the stroke of halftime was absolutely textbook. It was textbook. They put the squeeze on. They got the drive on. They got the right shoulder. The England back row was completely uh, out of commission. Aldrich picks up, and they, you know, they 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 executed it beautifully. But Genge went backwards at a rate of knots. Sinclair went backwards at a rate of knots. Now we've seen it against South Africa. We've seen it against New Zealand. So when it gets to the acid games, and I'm not saying that the scrum is the be-all and end-all of the game at the moment, because it certainly isn't, but there are critical moments, as we saw against South Africa in 2019, and particularly when you get to the, you know, the acid games in World Cups, in big tournaments, Six Nations World Cups, where if you're, if you're exposed in that area, they will, or if you're weak in that area, or have a weakness, they will expose it. Somebody will expose it. And at the moment, these two props are not, you know, people are talking about, have talked about them being world-class. Well, they are not world-class scrummages. Of that, there is no question. Well, I think the key to this, Nick, is to have a depth of squad so that they're put under pressure um, yeah. to perform. And if they're not performing, you bring somebody on 
that is uh, as not better or of similar quality. I believe at the moment that our bench is not strong enough or is not pushing enough um, those players. So therefore they wouldn't be selected as starting players. And I think that's what we need to find around the whole of the team is what that that, uh, second team would be. And credit to Ireland. You know, what uh, Andy Farrell did in the summer of going to New Zealand with that big squad and finding those reserve players, put pressure on every single player to perform. And I think that's the key for England over the next, uh, for this game against Ireland and then in the warm-up games. They've got to find players that will can be the starting player and therefore put pressure on the, the person that is in that position to perform. You touch on that, Andy, but one of the problems, surely, is that in the last Premiership RFU deal, the, a, the England A-team has been written off. There is no, you know, and the England A-team, OK, well, Ireland last summer, it was the Ireland squad, but they basically took an A-team as well to play yeah. the midweek matches, the series against Maori. That, that just doesn't exist for England anymore. Last time the A-team played, they went down to South Africa and beat 2016 and beat South Africa 2-0, South Africa 8. Um, so I think there's a big, big missing part of the jigsaw here for England if you want to build that strength in depth and get, get that pyramid working as it should be working. I agree. You know, the A-team is is, is is a vital cog that because you need to see players playing away from their club. You need to see what they're like in the international environment, how they play with other players, how they can perform away from home. Uh, or in a you know sort of in, in another country, and that's vital when you um, think about the mix of of squads and being able to be in in, in a training week. You know, how do you deal with a training week? How do you deal with rooming with somebody else? Yeah, you know, all these things come into play, and you have to del- then deliver a performance. And I think you know, so we're we're not sure about what our our bench is, um, or those next players coming in. And I think that's a sort of. I agree about you know, sort of Genge and Sinclair having to raise their their performances, but they're not being pushed by anybody at the moment. Well, I I think that there's you know I mean there are there are people that I we're we're certainly not blessed in terms of front row forwards at the moment. Um, m- many more loose heads um, who are, are pushing for that standard than tight heads. One plus sign is the fact that one of the best scrummaging tight heads in the Premiership, Will Collier has actually come back into the squad um, this week. So that that's that's good news because it, w- you know, it will begin to generate a bit more competition. Personally, I cannot understand how Rapava Ruskin, after the last two seasons he's had, is not part of the equation at Loosehead and putting real pressure on Genge. Um, so, uh, and Marla... I mean, Marla's a, a, an enigma. You know, nobody knows what's going on there. But as I understand it, he's yeah. available for England. And in terms of scrummaging looseheads, he is the best scrummaging loosehead in the in the country. So there are all sorts of things that um, you know Steve Borthwick has has got to um, address, and particularly uh, in terms of the front row and the front front five, probably. Um, there's a lot, a lot to do. You know, I mean. One of the things, Andy, that I wanted to ask you about, when you go back to 2003 and the build-up to 2003, the amount of extra work that was being done by players to get themselves to that standard, you know, that world, world-class world standard, if you like, was, you know, we, we all knew about it, you know, at the time and, and, and afterwards. 
these guys were working incredibly hard to get to that to that uh, pitch, if you like. I wonder, you know, just looking at these players and looking at the Premiership as well, which seems to be sort of semi-competitive at the moment. Uh, you know, you look at the, the basketball scores that are going on. You're asking what's going on in defence. Um, and whether the Premiership is actually preparing these players for this level. You know, you look at guys coming out of the top 14. They've got an edge and a bite to them. Our players didn't on Saturday at all. And... Um, I, I just wonder whether it's possible in this in this environment to get that extra because they've got six months. That's it. You know, they've got six months to get there, whether it's possible to do it in that time. It is possible to do because they will have the uh, summer where they'll have their training camp and they'll be able to really raise their standards there. And they'll have a clear run in as a squad working together. And to get you know to get to the uh, World Cup fit and hungry, um, I, I, I think one of the questions that you ask, I think we're going to find an answer on uh, Saturday when they play Ireland. I believe we're going to see a really good England performance at the weekend, and I think that will answer some of the questions that you that, and the the doubts that, that have been put about by this performance, because there were improvements against Italy and Wales. Now. We've been uh, smashed in a game. Can we respond? And every every, you know, every rugby player would have gone through a beating like that. And then it's about how you then perform the following week. And what will be key for this England group is to really set the marker down with, a, with an outstanding first half performance against Ireland and then to see it through for the whole 80 minutes. And I think... If we see that, then you will see the grounds that are there and the, the necessary um, elements that these players can deal with uh, adversity, but also can respond the following week. And the talk that's, that, that is done will be matched by walking the walk. And I think that's a big part for us because everybody's been in that situation of being spanked in a game. It's now how do you, how do you deal with it? And what I would say about that group of those three was that whenever there was that, that loss, they picked themselves up and performed the following the following week. And they had that ability to do that um, because of the pride that they had, because of the togetherness that was there, but also because of the competition for places. Because if they yeah. didn't deliver, they were gone yeah. and somebody else would come in. And this is the, you know, this is the key. Uh, for the players this weekend is to really stand up and perform. Well, I suppose a, a, a good sign is is that Steve Borthwick has shown that he's not going to stand on ceremony. He 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 made changes for this game against France, and has basically said that he'll pick a team that he thinks is um, is the right one, or pick individuals that are the right one to do a job. Um, I, I can't, the other thing I, I can't um, talk about the the current players in terms of how much work they're doing mm. but what I will say about the uh, the 03 squad um, their self-drive that they had to get themselves uh, to the position that they got to was uh, incredible for me and mm. yeah sort of and it, it, it was working with the clubs but also you know, the work of someone like Dave Redding going in and giving them advice and giving them extra programs to push themselves to the limit that they needed to get to. 
was phenomenal. And so hopefully, this is what Aled Walters will 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 now do with uh, with England. But then, but yes, yes, you hope so. But also, you what you're what you're hoping is is that there is an accommodation that those players can get the right balance. They get the right balance of training and still be able to perform in in the matches because we want the the, the quality of the Premiership matches to be better quality. Mm. That's a that's a key element that we need to that that needs to be raised. Yeah, you know, there are some uh, fantastic finishes and there are some incredible score lines and it's quite exciting. But I think some of the quality of the games aren't at the of the highest level. What I've been watching. Well, and and that you know that breaks into a much wider debate about ring fencing and so on, and whether it, whether you'll actually get that sort of intensity where you where you have a ring fence league because well, it certainly well, doesn't. It's certainly not there at the moment. We can do because the Irish have got it. So there's you know so you know Ireland are there with it, and the performances of their promises. You know, it's just they've got a a, a really good academy. That they've grown and the quality of player, the style of game that they're playing, the yeah. skills that they've got under pressure. So they've got the ability, they've shown over the last 10 years how to develop players and and keep bringing players through. So there's no reason why that can't be done in, in, in England. Yeah, I mean, I, I I differ a little bit in insofar as the URC is not the be-all, end-all. They rest players con- con- constantly. Uh, throughout that and bring young players through that much I, I would say their big mindset is towards the European uh, competition and they do pretty well in it uh, but that's a tournament that's a you know that's a that's a real that's a a, a high quality tournament um, and obviously then they concentrate very much on the international game. One thing I wanted to raise um, I spoke to you about it briefly, Andy. It was the England blueprint and whether rugby is starting to just move on from that. And Brendan, I'm finding that obviously, if you think about the Six Nations, we've now got two clear tiers between Scotland, Ireland, France, and Wales, England, and Italy. And obviously, Italy have been on the up. England and Wales have been, you know, falling away a little bit. And it seems to me that the two teams that have fallen away, England and Wales, you know, do play close to that traditional brand of rugby that's not particularly expansive based on a strong set piece or a strong kicking game. And are we saying then that, Brendan, to be able to keep up, it's not just a case of that anymore, but it's, you know, playing the French flair or just having that Irish machine that's actually necessary. And if England and Wales don't adapt, they're going to find themselves falling further and further behind. Well, it's always nuanced, isn't it? I mean, yes, France play fantastic rugby, but it all starts up front. Ireland also plays some very, very fluid rugby, uh, exciting backs. But again, it all starts up front. Italy at the moment, uh, if you think of them, for example, they've got great backs. And in fact, they've got good forwards, but they're not meshing the two properly like like France and Ireland do and Scotland on a good day. So I don't think you, you don't put all your eggs in one basket, but you just have to be aware of your strengths. If you've got the, you know, the killer players out wide, you have to use them. And you use them when it's appropriate, but you know you. But you have to win the ball for them. I mean, it's it's not rocket science. You can't you can't just put too much weight on one emphasis of, of your game. You've got to have that balanced game. England are, are way out of kilter on that. They don't even for a start as ever. We get back to they don't know which fly half they want. So you know if you don't if you if you've got that debate going on at fly half and half back, 
that means you're not getting the balance between forwards and backs automatically. It's not happening because you're not sure what the message is. Mm. Brendan, did you watch the under-20s game as well? I watched a bit of it, and, and France were as dominant in that as as they were on on Saturday. Um, I mean, that was the full France under-20. Uh, they filled two under-20s, basically. The one early in the tournament, which doesn't have their T14 uh, players, and then the, the big boys come in at the end. Because, uh, I mean, Italy should have beaten uh, France this year at under-20 level earlier in the season. But no, France were hugely impressive. Um, I don't think it's a, a vintage England under-20 squad, but uh, they were very, very impressive, France. But that's the point that that highlights, is that you know the under-20s is usually an indication of what's to come, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. It, it's a pretty it, good indication. If it's not a vintage England under-20 squad, you know, is this something that we're going to have to get used to for a little while? Isn't England, England being a tier two Six Nations side? Well, nor was it vintage last year, by the way. Um, it was the year before. They won the... Um, Van, Jack Van Portry captain the skipper the side to that summer European under-20 championship, which was like the in place of the World Cup that year. So that's two, three years ago. But no, England weren't vintage this year. They weren't vintage last year. And they, I mean, it's it's not an absolute hard and fast rule, but it's, um, you know, we see what's happened to France when they started tapping into their under-20s properly. It's a pretty good guide as to what could be achieved if if the if the progression is correct, if everybody's but, tapping into it correctly. But also, if you, if you look at the strength of, of England, it came from Ford, Farrell, Tuolangi, all playing together, didn't it? And that, mm. yeah, sort of, uh, and, and George, and that moved into that uh, England side. And Natoji was successful with his England. Yeah, uh, yep, that era. And that moved in, yeah. So that gave them the confidence to have players that were used to beating New Zealand, had been, you know, sort of champions of the of, of the world. So they had confidence that the players they're up against, they knew that they could deliver against. And I think mm. it, it is a there is a real strong correlation. And that's 10 years ago, mind you see. That's, you know, yeah. England since then haven't really set it on fire. They've had some decent tournaments, but they haven't had that golden clutch of two or three years together for 10 years now. So do you think that puts into question what we're doing with our academies? Yeah, that's how what we're yes. How we're growing players and how we're coaching players. Yeah. That's a very big subject. I've, yeah, over the years, I've had pretty strong views on that. It's, are you producing the club player to play professional rugby in the premiership? Um, in which case you, you take them down that route. Are you letting them free and loose in school? I like to see school board players just learning the game, doing what they do best and bringing in that last, that sort of fine-tuned coaching as late as possible, if I'm actually honest. Uh, and I think there's been too much academy coaching from about the age of 15, 16 almost, and it, it produces this stereotype player and we are crushing the, the brilliance and natural aptitude of young sportsmen and women who are you know, brilliant at all sports and, and can bring that into their game in the more relaxed school environment. Well, so, do you know, I had, I had um, Ian Bolshaw, Mike Tyndall and Steve Borthwick in my academy Now that when I was coaching Bath. Now, that wouldn't happen nowadays because they were from Lancashire and Yorkshire and I wouldn't be allowed to bring them in. You only the allowed those academy. schools in your catchment area. Exactly. And, and I think for me, you know, sort of part of your growth is going to different environments, but also, you know, sort of challenging yourself to live away from home and to be able to still be able to be become successful, you know, through that and become a whole person. And by the time they were 20, they were in the in the in the bath team. 
And that was mm. a Bath team that had won the, the Heineken Cup in 98. And by 99, 2000, they're in the team and performing well and then selected for England. Yeah, and I think, you know, as, as, as youngsters, and I think that's one of the uh, important parts for me about it, it was that nowadays that wouldn't happen because right. they would be in their own uh, environment, even maybe still living at home from, yeah. where, from where they are. It's an odd thing. I mean, London Irish uh, are in that area where they can tap into sort of Surrey schools, you know, um, Berkshire, Wellington College. So London Irish do produce some belting young bats, but their catchment area is really, really blessed in that respect. And and I, I just often wonder if you're a Leicester, like you know, Leicester in uh, a coach, and you spot a young player at the Rosman Park Sevens next week um, from I know Cranley or London Irish. Are you allowed to go anywhere near them? You're not, are you? Because they they already have to feed in to the the, the Southwest London Harlequins, London Irish, and it seems a little bit restrictive to me. Mm. I guess lesser lesser have been um, casting their uh, their net as far as Norfolk, haven't they? Norfolk, Suffolk, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, but no, but that is their that's their designated that's their area. area. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, um, I had you know, so I was coaching Bristol. Ellis Genge was you know sort of with me then, and um, an opportunity arose for him to go to Leicester, and you know Bristol in the championship. Um, whatever for whatever reasons he went to to Leicester, and it was the you know, for me it was the best thing for him, you know, in terms of going to Richard Cockrell, being not the top dog there, being able to you know sort of really have to knuckle down and work hard, be challenged by people. Though there was probably nobody that could challenge him at Bristol, nobody you know sort of he was the toughest guy in the squad. Um, there was nobody going to you know sort of uh, knock him down. Um, He's the king of uh, Bristol. He goes to Leicester, and I felt it really, you know, sort of um, shaped him to the the person that he is. And it's great that he's gone back to Bristol. But I think we all need that at times. We all need to go to new environments to be able to shape ourselves and to push us to a to another level. Are we also seeing a chasm here? Just going back to um, Andy, your point about England A. And in the past year, we've, for example, seen the New Zealand A teams, Ireland A teams, they've all had tours. England A also haven't. And one thing that that creates, we speak about the England under 20 sides and conversions from great under 20s players to good international players. But it means that there's this massive gap between the last time you put on an England shirt in under 20s context to that first game in the senior team you know you look at marcus smith who had a three-year gap or whatever and eddie jones took his time to finally give him his go jack van portfleet has had a massive gap that assimilation like you say would surely be facilitated by regular appearances in an english shirt be it i don't know not an under 20s team but a pseudo under 23s team playing a few friendlies or something which i don't think is the most far-fetched idea in the world but just so you don't have three or four years without putting a red rose on without experiencing some sort of international environment in some sort some sort of way. Well, I think it's vital for the growth of the any international team, but also it's the use of you can use some experienced players to help those youngsters, you know, navigate their way through a game, and you know, it provides competition for places, but it also um, allows, you know, sort of brings in some coaches as well. So your coaches are are there working with that with that eighteen. Um so that I think it's a win-win all the time. 
you know, yeah. from the you know sort of being able to play in the uh, in the A team, and it enables you also to put a performance in. And um, England, uh, sorry, England A played Scotland A, and uh, hadn't pitched Stuart Hogg for the for the senior team, and he had a great performance. And Scotland A beat England A in um, Kelsa or Gala. It was in Gala. And then the following week, he he was involved in the Scotland team that went down to Wales because of his performances. So it means you're able to see players and see how they're how they're playing. And then if you 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 need that next person to step in, you know he's playing well. So therefore, you bring him in. So yeah. I think I remember, uh, yeah, I remember seeing Jason White in an A match on Friday night up in Scotland, absolutely atomised England A. And he hadn't been capped at that stage. Next week, he's in the Scotland team. Yeah. You know, it, it, it did a. It's a proving ground. A matches. Yeah, it's. I, I mean, I I don't disagree with any of that. And um, England A tours have been extremely important in terms of the development of the team until the arrival of Eddie Jones, where he seemed to sort of completely ignore what happened in that South Africa tour that you mentioned earlier on, Brett. Yeah. Um, the only problem is, is that, you know, with the amount of fixture congestion that there is, um, getting the agreement of uh, premiership sides to release yet more players to England for tours looks to be a pretty forlorn, forlorn hope at the moment. So well, if you go down to 10 teams, then you'll be able to create that, won't you? Um, you might be able to, Andy. I don't know. I don't know. Um you know, it depends on what cup competitions are put in place and so on and so forth. There's never any uh, any short of of, uh, of ideas for sort of filling the um, filling the fixture calendar. I don't think at all. But England A should take preference. I agree with that uh, definitely. But uh, the other th problem that I think England A had is that apart from the Maori and perhaps the uh, South Africans, everybody else shelved their A sides. Mm. Uh, mind you, playing the Maori and the South Africans on a constant basis wouldn't be a bad idea either. <laughs> Feels like the Rugby Paper podcast is due another discussion on the Engl England rugby as an institution. Um, I'm going to put a pin in it for today just because we've not got too much time left. Um, but certainly after the Six Nations, I think we need to dig deeper into the roots of English rugby. Um now, let's do a brief, brief recap of the other games before we move on. Um, Ireland-Scotland, I think, was another example of an Ireland team, Andy, that can get the job done no matter what. Um, I can't remember who the interview was with, but it was one of the starters, and they said that at halftime they were laughing because they'd lost Dan Sheehan to injury. Kelleher couldn't throw because of his shoulder. Henderson and Doris had got, gone off in quick succession, and they were in there, you know, one game away from a Grand Slam or one and a half, and they were laughing. What does that say about a team that's sort of forgotten what it's like to truly be under the cosh because they have that much faith? Well, I think they're enjoying their rugby. They all understand how each other plays. Uh, they run really good line. What uh, epitomised it for me was just before half-time when Scotland had real pressure on the on the Irish line. And the defensive work of Van der Fleer to win a turnover with James Lowe, but also that final play of the half when Porter is seen making, yeah, you know, the prop forward making a tackle in the corner 
a desperate tackle to to knock the Scottish player into touch. Yeah, the, just their work rate in defence uh, when put under pressure was exemplary, and I think that just shows that the team are working for each other in attack. You know, we we know the efficiency that they have in attack, and I think it was stuttering that a little bit. But then they brought on Gibson Park, and he has been the the, the real driver of the Leinster team in the speed that they play at and the accuracy that he has. And he showed that in the uh, for the Irish team in this game. And, you know, the box kick he put up was right on the money uh, for Hansen to be able to uh, run onto and win it. And just his speed of pass and timing of pass and uh, decision-making that he has is uh, is superb. So I thought it was a great test match. Um, the second half petered out a little bit when it went to uh, 22-7. Um, but I thought uh, Scotland had their opportunities and they didn't finish them, but I felt they didn't finish them because of really good defence by uh, by Ireland. I can't see too many teams who lose two hookers managing to cope <laughs> with with it with such um, a plum. You know, I mean, for Van der Fleer to come out, I can't remember what his the, the line out stats were, but I think he he they win six of his eight throws or five yeah, of his throws yeah. or whatever. Um, and Nick, for, uh, Nick, I was shouting at the television, stick the jumper at the front, yeah. Scotland, and put yeah. him under pressure, and yeah. he won't win the line out. You know what? I think I, the I way think he was. Them, they gave think, him the space to go to. Think, and that was you know, so disappointing. Yeah, I think the way I, I, I take the point, but I think the way that he adapted. And the way he was playing, I still think he would probably manage to yeah. manage to fire the dart over the first pod. But um, and also, he, he Kier Deeney, before, he, Nick. I mean, yeah, he must have yeah, practiced. Yeah. He had a had a really good. Listen, that that's the thing about going back to all really successful teams, England two thousand and three. They've got a plan for most, if not all, eventualities, and they had a plan. You know, for Kean Healy to come in, go to hooker. And effectively, I mean, the, the, the Scottish front row, I, I thought I, I thought Gregor Townsend, listen, it's, it's very difficult, you know, the, the replacement business and so on. I thought Gregor Townsend made a, um, a, a serious bench error in taking off the two starting Scottish props um, and bringing on, I can't remember exactly what stage, but it was probably about 55 minutes, something like that, uh, bringing on Bergen and Barty, and um, with Healy on, they were too powerful. The yeah. Irish were too powerful for them. And um, the game really, you know, it, it was it was one of the hinge points, Not definitely not the only one, but a hinge point. So, um, yeah, Ireland's ability to adapt on the, on the hoof, but also the preparation and the work that they do, the depth of the work that they do um, in training and so on, it, it, it paid off. And it will pay off in the World Cup as well. I'm I'm pretty sure that the idea that Ireland will do a, a World Cup headplant is um, is receding. But I think England will challenge them this weekend. I really do. Yeah, England. I felt England challenged them with 14 men at Twickenham uh, last year, and mm. I feel that England have that ability, as Scotland showed, to challenge them in the in the tackle. And but also Ireland give you a little bit more space to play. Okay. And I think if England can get there, if England get on the front foot, 
uh, they've got the ball carriers on the front foot. And that's what Scotland were able to show. And I think that's the key for England this weekend is to get their to make the difference in their ball carries, as they did with the try that they scored, if they can get that consistently, they can put this Irish side under pressure. What changes would you make, Andy? Uh, I feel Ben Earls has got to come in. Yeah, I think he's got a bit of dynamism. He's got something about him. I haven't been involved in any of the discussions around why has he not been playing, but there's obviously something that Eddie Jones or Steve has not liked about him. Um, and I wouldn't know what that is, but he looks a good player. Mm. Um, I, I think you that, bring Dan Cole in at tight head. I think Sinclair. Um, I think it would be a good kick up the backside for for Sinclair, and I think Sinclair would come off the bench and and perform. Yep, I think I could see that as a as a as a as a good decision um, to have. I would even think about so. I like uh, Willis. Yeah, I think he's a he's a quality player. Um, I like Ludlam. I think Don Brandt is a is a is a good player, but I think that maybe Ludlam should go at, at eight just to bring that real dynamism of that carries, just a bit more physicality, aggression that he brings. Um, and I would think about Ben Earls coming into that back row again to be to match the competitiveness that the Irish have 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 got. And I and I just think about the the lock situation. Um, I understand why Johnny Hill's not picked because Johnny Hill at times has given a lot of penalties away. Mm. But I think you need somebody of that ilk in around that group that's going to bring a bit of edge about them. And I think that the pack needs that little bit of bite about it. Tualangi's got to, yeah, I think, you know, so with with Ollie Lawrence not available, Tualangi's got to come into the mix. And then you've got to look just at one other decision is. Porter is a is a is a is a real uh, glue of a player. He played well for England. He does some really good things, and I wonder whether Steve, because of what he's seen of him playing at Leicester and how he's played, might just bring him into the into the midfield. What yeah. for, for Henry Slade? For Henry Slade, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but I think you know, so if there's a. I, I really like Henry Slade. So is it, and he and he's got a left foot kicking game as well. So it gives you that balance. So we'll lose that kicking game if if um, Slade's not on the field. Um, but I think that yeah, that, I think you've got to really go at that that Irish uh, backline because they give you some space to play, and we've got to be able to to really attack. And I think uh, Watson will be given space, and it, you know we can see some of uh, his real attributes as a as a runner uh, yeah. in this game. And, I see your uh, old mate Stuart Barnes would pick Bernal's at twelve. I was just about to say that. <laughs> Which is, <laughs> we get these ones pop up occasionally. It's not the daftest idea, but there is man who fit and available on this occasion. So I mean, probably no point. But you you do fancy seeing Bernal's have a go in the backs one day. Yeah, but not before he's done it at club level. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> The idea. Of doing a burger masco in midfield uh, doesn't appeal to me at all. <laughs> against Grand Slam Chase in Ireland in Dublin, <laughs> yeah. what could go wrong? Well, you know they say that about the the back row and the centres. They are interchangeable. If you watch the games they play nowadays and the way they play them, they're playing similar in similar ways. So, yeah. no, you were fancy playing in the centre then, would you, Andy? 
I would, have fancy, I would have fancy playing fly half, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Bit slow, though. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, I look at this, um, as we've talked about, England to respond. And I think that this is a great test for them to show their credibility and to show that the work they've been doing for the last six, seven weeks that Steve's been there, that it all comes together. Um, after the the disappointment of the weekend, yeah, and the potential to be a real momentum boost as well going forward. Um, before we look ahead to next weekend, Andy, should we do your round and rugby fifteen, the quick fire fifteen questions, very quickly? If you really need to, <laughs> I'd, I'd I'd like to. If you wouldn't like to, that's totally. <laughs> um, okay, nickname. Well, my wife called me the blonde bombshell. But uh, that's when I had long blonde blonde hair. And as you heard, that I was called Robbo by uh, Nick uh, straight away. (laughs) Or Brendan, they called me Robbo. So Robbo was probably my uh, nickname. But um, I was also called Mr. Angry by uh, Austin Healy quite a bit. So uh, (laughs) I would probably be the one. I I was quite an angry person as a a rugby player. Best rugby memory? Well, as a a coach, it's got to be the... The Rugby World Cup uh, final, uh, phenomenal game of rugby. You know, sort of the whole hundred minutes, uh, it ebbed and flowed. Uh, but it was um, the end of a, you know, sort of the climax of three great years together and working for that one goal. Most embarrassing rugby memory. Well, I was playing for the Southwest against the All Blacks, and we were leading at the time twelve nine in Red Ruth. And unfortunately, I missed a tackle on Aaron Penne. I say I missed a tackle. I was on his back and he was carrying me uh, forward as he picked up from a scrum. And he offloaded into the in- onto the inside to Twigamala, who then passed to Jamie Joseph. And we lost by one score against the All Blacks. So um, I'm still ribbed about that a lot. Uh, in fact, me missing that tackle meant that Neil Back didn't get selected for England against the All Blacks because he was too small. So, but that was uh, still uh, still great to me that I missed that tackle. Pre-game tune. I was psyched up on a Thursday, so I didn't really need a <laughs> I didn't really need a pre-game tune. But I suppose the the one that I I would have loved would be Madness, One Step Beyond. Nice. Post-game meal. Uh, that would be a vegetarian lasagna. Wow, nice. Best player, best player you've played against? Can I have two? Yes. Because in, in my position, it would be Peter Winterbottom, who was a phenomenal rugby player, uh, really tough, but also skillful uh, as, a, as a ball player in his uh, later years. And uh, as a player to, you know, sort of to mark in the backs was uh, Jonathan Davis, Jiffy. I played against him uh, in Neath in the Knoll and uh, I only touched him once and that was a late tackle. So he was, <laughs> but he was absolutely brilliant. Two former guests on the podcast you've picked there. Best player you've played with? I'll be the, the current president of Bath, uh, John Hall, who was an absolute phenomenal blindside flanker. Um, he would have had a lot more caps for England barring his uh, knee injury that he had, but he was just a, a brilliant player and in the professional era would have been world-class. Favourite player right now? Uh, Tom Curry. Has Tom. it all 
and hopefully will uh, come back fit and be able to show how good he is. Rugby idol. Now that is Jean-Pierre Reeves for the blonde hair, uh, but also his courageousness and as a child growing up, watching the six, uh, Five Nations on the telly was just uh, brilliant. Favourite stadium? Uh, Twickenham. Favourite gym exercise? Uh, as a lot of people will tell you, I wasn't very good in the gym, so I'll probably say it was a plank. <laughs> we have had someone say plank before. It was Martin, <coughs> Martin Whitcomb, which did surprise me a little bit. <laughs> Occupation if rugby didn't exist? Uh, I'd be a teacher, school teacher. Superstitions? Well, I didn't really have superstitions either, but one that I have had as a coach is to make sure that the team run on the Friday is not absolutely perfect because every perfect team run we had, and I remember one in 2001 against Ireland, where it was the best team run you will ever see, and we performed poorly on the on the Saturday. So make sure your team runs aren't perfect. How would you make sure they're not perfect? You just like well, you trip someone up. A few things to mess it up, yes. <laughs> Rugby law you would change. Uh, the number of substitutions. I think uh, we've got to go down to five substitutions and uh, be able to manage it in that way. Best thing about working in rugby? I love the whole match day, the build-up to the game uh, in the morning to going to the stadium, the supporters being there, and just the challenges of playing against different teams, the whole coaching, and then the celebration afterwards, the few drinks. So I think... All match days for me are, are brilliant occasions. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for doing that, Andy. Um, Ollie, I'm just, I'm just going to yeah, jump in there. Go and, go Andy missed one embarrassing moment. Um, I think it was 2002. He was invited out to Bucharest to help coach the Romanians. 2000? 2000. Going through a rough time. And England were playing them, and, and it was a bit of a missionary <laughs> effort from the RQ. It was about 90 degrees in Bucharest in, in whenever it was. And a couple of us uh, scribes had gone along for the trip, and um, Andy was running around coaching his ass off. And we were on the on the touchline, and some of the local boys came out. And 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 in this proper drinks canister, they it was eighty percent proof Slimovich, I think it was. And uh, and Andy was pouring sweat. He came running across, Brendan, Brendan, water. So I threw it to him, and he necked this stuff. <laughs> and more or less died on the spot. It was Palinka, <laughs> wasn't it? It was all. It was awful, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and who, who's I still remember that time, Brendan, when I was out when I've been out there the last three years. They've loved it. They they kept remembering uh, all that and the uh, the fun that we had, you know, with it. It was a really good. It was a lovely trip. That actually, they were really into it. And do you remember that they, they, they didn't have a, Bucharest was a mess, wasn't it? Yeah. But they we, they took us to a little dash out or whatever they call it, and they everything they had they gave to us for a, yeah. a bit of lunch before we went home. And it was, it was terrific. Yeah, and you did a great job there coaching them and, and just keeping the flag flying because they were in desperate states at the time, weren't they? I, I can recommend I can recommend you going there now. You know, the stadium is brilliant. There's a there's a 10,000 stadium um, right where we trained and that when we went out there. And But also, yeah, sort of there's a, there's a, there's a good ability amongst the, 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 the squad. So they'll be interesting in the World Cup, uh, how they do. Yeah, guys, I do want to. I am conscious of time. Um, 
thank you for doing that again, Andy. And thank you for that addition, Brendan. It sounds like it was just as much your fault as it was Andy's. No. <laughs> <laughs> got next. Um, I want to talk about Wales Italy, but I think we're going to bypass that for time. And I do promise our Welsh and Italian listeners that we will do a rundown of them as we do a review of the tournament. Let's just look ahead to the final weekend. And really, the big one is Ireland and England. And we have looked ahead to that somewhat. I think the one thing that wor- that's worth mentioning, Brendan, is that there's the prospect of a St. Patrick's Day Grand Slam in Dublin, a first ever Grand Slam in Dublin. I mean, how much do you wish you were out there for that, if that if it does go that way? That would be incredible. And that's after four days at Cheltenham. I mean, there's going to be <laughs> tens of thousands of Irish from barely alive women, barely alive if that happens. I'm like, with Andy, I think England will turn up and they will perform. But this island side has got a solidity and a, a nous about it that I don't see I don't see them blowing that one. Um, no. So I think my prediction of a Grand Slam from two months ago is fairly safe. It's funny. Yeah, you predict that every year, Brent. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's funny. What I would say is they, if they do achieve it, they deserve it. Yeah, they really, they exactly. It's one of those where you look at they've been challenged and they've met the challenges that have been there for them. It's not been easy for them. So credit to them. They found a way to beat Italy when they were underperforming and Italy were playing well. So... Yeah, so if they, if they do it, if they do uh, make it, it's a well-deserved uh, grand slam. Yeah, yeah. And if you are listening and you're in Dublin and the party does come about, then on our behalf, please do enjoy the party. Yeah, Brendan, it was funny you started bragging about your predictions there because you actually had a bit of a shocker of a weekend. Um, did I? Yeah, you can't did. even remember what I predicted. Well, you're now a member of the Turkey Club. You were the, the the ostracized member of the Rugby Paper podcast, but you are now a part of it because you predicted, I think it was an Italy win in Rome. Ah, oh, yes, I did, yeah. Did it, did well, they should have won, to be fair, oh. but no. They... <laughs> they, should, they, should, they should have. But they should have won. Didn't I get the exact result in that one, uh, Ollie? No. <laughs> <laughs> but, Nick, you did predict a Wales win, as did I. Um, so... Well, Nick, you're still in the wooden spoon position. Chris, Chris has surpassed you by some way. He actually had a very good weekend. He's not here to sing his own praises, so I'll do that for him. Um, I'm appalled to hear that. Yeah, I know. Well, and Nick, you're in last place. You're the defending champion. You need to make <laughs> something happen. You predicted an England win in Dublin. So, well, Andy's already alluded to it, but I think I want to say that there's not a single fibre in your body that believes that will happen. I haven't predicted an England win in du- Dublin. Yes, you have. Right? Yeah. <laughs> By what margin? Tell me. Uh, 35-24 to England. Who, me? Oh, that's a big score. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I must have been on the sliver of it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a big score. Yeah, that's quite significant, um, Nick. So go on, justify that one. Um, I, do, do you know something? I'm I'm a little bit flummoxed because I've got something very different down on my predictions in front of me. <laughs> I will have to. I, I will ch- when we go off air. I will check the email you sent me. But yeah, you know, I my, think you're on the slip of it. Yeah, well, permanently at the moment. To be fair, so maybe. Um, all right. Well, in which case, either you're not standing by it or you're being made stand by. Andy, justify your prediction then, because you predicted twenty three twenty to to England. I think England's defence will be a lot better. Uh, they'll kick their penalties. 
in this game. So it'll be 2018 to Ireland. And England will score a maul at the end to win 23-20. Very bold. So wow. there you go. So I think bold. England's maul, England will score a try from their maul uh, in this game. And I think their mauling game will create penalties, give them field position. And I really feel that uh, they'll take their opportunities. To go to Ireland, to beat Ireland, they've got to keep the, the scoreline to 20 or below. And I feel that uh, this England defence really has to step up in this game. And I think they'll do that. And you know what, Nick? You are absolutely right. I have, I've, what I've done is I've taken your Ireland-Scotland prediction. So I apologise. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I see I've got Ireland 30, England 30, 17. 30, 30, like 17 yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're right, you're right. So, <laughs> Andy, you're out on your own in that prediction then. Good. Why did I do that? I'm now questioning everything I've done with the predictions league. You see, Hewitt's going to be demanding a recount now. Now that you've had this, this no, one... he's not here. We we won't speak of this, and then he won't. He won't. He won't. <laughs> no, okay. He, he, won't, he won't listen back, so it's fine. Um, the other surprising prediction, Brendan, you've got Scotland drawing against Italy at Murray. Well, my, my theory was again eight weeks ago that Italy were going to get something out of the tournament, and I think they're playing well enough to get a result now. Actually, am I expecting a draw? Possibly not. But then again, yeah. they're, they're, they're ballpark. They're ballpark. So let's stick with it. Well, obviously, a draw is a bold result to predict because your odds are unlikely to get the result wrong. But if it does... Well, one in 14, I think it is. So we've had uh, we've had 12 <laughs> matches. So I'm hoping that... There's bound to be one draw. <laughs> so, yeah, Nick, you're in last place on 54. Chris is on 58. Andy, you're playing on a team with... Jerry Guscott, Scott Hastings, Jiffy, Jiffy, and oh my God, last week. Frank Cotton. Frank Cotton. Thank Frank you. Cotton. Yeah. We predicted a glorious England win. Yeah. Oh, no. yeah. yeah, that kind of stitched you up a little bit. So you're in third place uh, on 59. Brendan, you're on 61. And I'm, I've taken a little bit of a lead. I had quite a good weekend. So I'm on 75. Um, oh, wow. Could be a bit of a swing. Could be a bit of a swing. Yeah. Stay tuned with the Predictions League. We'll wrap up there, I think, guys. We ran over a little bit today. But, Andy, I'm guessing you're not watching any rugby live at, at any stadiums this weekend. But enjoy it from the peace of Bath. And thank you very much for joining us. I really enjoyed it. And great to see you guys again. Likewise. Great to see you, Robert. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Rugby Paper Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use and recommend the show to your friends. The Rugby Paper is available to buy every Sunday. And to make sure you don't miss it, subscribe through our print, digital and online options at therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions. That's therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions to get all our content for as little as 14p per day.